Blaze Radio Network. And now, Reform This with Dr. Sudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Thank you for joining me. This is where we dive into topics that are related to national security, related to Islamic reform, freedom, liberty, Americanism, all the things that run to the core of what I believe it is to be an American citizen, and also addressing the topics that might be beyond the, the politically correct, but ultimately things that should be on the front burner for American security. And now, at the end of August 2022, we're reminded what happened a year ago. A year to the day, August 26, was the attack that killed 13 of our service men and women serving in Afghanistan in an attack by an ISIS affiliate as we were escaping with our tail between our legs as it appeared by the method and the incompetence and negligence that the Biden administration used in withdrawing from Afghanistan. And again, make no mistake, this is not to criticize a withdrawal. We needed to withdraw. We had been there 20 years with no success, with no change and a failed state. But as I talked to you last year during the embarrassing withdrawal, there are ways to withdraw and hand the narrative to the Afghanis, hand the narrative to the Afghani government and its failed governance and leadership and say that we did what we could. Here it is. We were leaving versus a vacuum that was created that was just an abomination. And you know, it's been a year since we had this departure and a year since thousands of Afghanistan were rushed to C-17s as we saw pictures of bodies falling from the sky and evacuation of our allies who helped us because they were fearful of a remaining regime of the Taliban and what it would do. We were promised that the Taliban would be, oh, so moderate, as if we were idiots. And then one year since that suicide bombing at the Taliban-controlled checkpoint to the Kabul airport, Gates killing 13 of our service members, simply committing the crime of trying to help Americans and Afghani nationals who had been our aides, our colleagues, our allies, trying to flee Afghanistan. And why would they do that? Remember, they were sort of punctuating the narrative. The Biden administration didn't care about the narrative. And yet the narrative in the Islamic world, who is the strong horse as it appears not only on media and propaganda, but in the reality. Can they take the narrative as we leave and certainly punctuating it with a disastrous, horrific attack on our servicemen and women gave them the narrative on departure as if they needed that attack because the narrative was such that we couldn't even evacuate people from Bagram Air Force, from Bagram Air Base rather, but instead through one of the most dangerous parts of a large city in Afghanistan for departure, which was Kabul. And as Amber Smith, a former American helicopter pilot, 
with honorable service rights in town hall. She says, President Biden wants you to forget about what happened in Afghanistan. He wants you to forget about the bureaucratic incompetence and incompetent decision-making by nearly every senior leader. To this day, no one has been held accountable. Accountability, even verbally, would mean admitting failure and taking ownership, something the Biden administration refuses to accept. And you know, that at one year, this is really the message I think I'd like to focus on, which is, you know, we thought that there'd be hearings to expose. There were some hearings but really to have an American conversation about what happens when we, because of national security, go into, as President Bush said, fight them over there so that they don't continue to fight us over here as we invaded Afghanistan in October 2001. And we thought bin Laden was there. And ultimately it took until 2010 until we targeted him and found him in Pakistan, another ally. But ultimately, what did we get? What is the, what, what happened after 20 years? Why weren't we able to have a successful liberation, a successful transformation of a country that prior to the Taliban and even prior to Russia, Soviet Union invasion had some of the hallmarks of a modernizing society. Now, that's obviously debatable, but... It had some beginnings of liberation with women becoming more and more educated. But then that all got set back to the 12th century, if not even before, as the Taliban took control and the jihadis ran the government and pushed back the Soviets after decades. As Amber goes on, she says the botched withdrawal wasn't a mistake or a one-time bad call. The catastrophe occurred due to consistent and specific inept leadership failures at the Department of Defense, Department of State, the White House, and the intelligence community. Failure to plan, failure to be realistic about the strength and capabilities of the Taliban. Failure to adequately prepare and vet people to get them out of the country before the U.S. military departed. The Biden administration failed to connect the dots and keep agencies in sync. Pentagon leadership downplayed the truth about the shell the Afghanistan government military was, as was the reality that without the U.S. dollar and military propping them up, they would all come crashing down. Washington was hoping for an Afghanistan that they wanted, that should have been after 20 years of war and $2 trillion, but wasn't. The withdrawal wasn't a mistake. It was a catastrophic failure of epic proportions. So let's get this narrative right. And I'm going to remind you about some of my opinions on this that we've talked about before in this program. What do I mean by narrative? Because I didn't, you know, I'm not one to uh, say any more. I said, obviously, at the beginning in 2002 and three, I felt that there was some, obviously, pipe dream that Afghanistan would be liberated from its oppressors domestically, but it's a failed state. There's a culture of corruption. There's tribalism and other things that were just not able to be breached by 10, 20 years of American intervention. Now, would I have done things differently? I, I screamed from the rooftops and multiple hearings in, in Congress about the need for America to build a private-public partnership there to help civil society 
to not to build nations, but to rather work with reformers. And instead, our military thought that we could engage moderate Taliban, and they did that to their own their own folly, even to the moment we left. This narrative of a moderate Taliban is like moderate Nazis or moderate Khomeinists in Iran. There is no such a thing. It is, it is a lie. They simply will deny violence and make short-term agreements in order to get a deceptive advance, and then they change. And we saw this now a year after our departure. They ratcheted right back to a society that was horrifically misogynistic, racist, and Islamist with women right away not able to go into education, with not able to have any bodily autonomy with what they wear, with a, a dispersal of terror organizations throughout the city and throughout the areas controlled by the Taliban. How do we know this? The only success that the Biden administration claimed that they had was the targeting and killing. Now, we still don't have evidence, but they claim that they got Zawahiri. And who was Zawahiri? Zawahiri was ultimately the second in command, if not the right hand of bin Laden, and was in many ways as bin Laden was the charismatic and finance guy who was the head of Al-Qaeda. Zawahiri was the ground grassroots network building essential component of Al-Qaeda. And despite all of our intelligence, for 20 years we were unable to find him. And, and, you know, I think this is like the sixth time now we've said we've actually killed him. For a while I thought I heard he was on dialysis and other things and all bad intel. Now let's say he got him, though. Let's say we got him. Is that really a victory? A victory against one guy, but the Hydra of Al-Qaeda and ISIS and other jihadi, Islamic militant, Islamist organizations will continue to recreate itself. But the reality is, Al-Qaeda, this guy was found through satellite images from a balcony in Kabul. He was not wandering on balconies and in the middle of Kabul when we were there. So the, again, this is not to say that we needed to stay there like we were, but somehow to say that in Afghanistan that quickly ratcheted, clicked right back to being run by the Taliban, somehow would be controlled from militant Islamist influence and Al-Qaeda control, and to have them freely walking about, that that would not happen, proved otherwise. Okay, fine, our intelligence operation in this over-the-horizon, that's what they called it. They said that we would pull our troops out and we would have an over-the-horizon counterterrorism method. And yeah, that's what we use in a lot of countries where we don't have much of a presence. But I would argue that we would need, we should have maintained some type of on-the-ground strategic presence of special forces and others, not in the tens of thousands like we had, but in the few hundreds. And that's not called a occupation or anything. We have similar tens, if not a few hundred troops in odd places like Djibouti and Somalia and elseplace elsewhere so the bottom line is is that the departure was done in such a quick rapid fashion that it allowed 
anything that happened as a result to be blamed on the departure rather than the government that we handed it over to, rather than have a public process of American withdrawal to say that we did what we could and now we're going to hand this country back over to the Afghanistan people, to the people of Afghanistan. We're going to do it from city to city to have a public process that, yes, had some investment in it over a few months to do this methodically and publicly with sector-to-sector handoffs? No. It was done in the middle of the night with evacuating air cargo planes, shuttering of the Bagram Air Base in a way that made this completely incompetent and anything that happened that could be blamed on our abandonment of our allies and all of the Afghani nationals and our own soldiers that were, were, were scratching their head at what the hell we were doing. Militarily, diplomatically, socially, culturally, strategically, there was nothing more inept than what we did. Again, this, is, uh, this was all about narratives. Where's the, the strategic narrative to realize that the jihad is still growing exponentially around the world? And that ultimately, not only Zawahri, but the Al-Qaeda's will reconstitute the ISIS's. ISIS-K in Afghanistan and ISIS-Syria and Iraq will reconstitute when they can. Jihadis from Chechnya to Egypt to the West will continue to attack, as we saw against Salman Rushdie. And I'm going to give you a follow-up on that story shortly. Where, where is that narrative about what's the context in which we do things? The Biden administration didn't care. They still have absolutely zero when it comes to counterterrorism strategy. None. Look at the White House's website. You'll find nothing. They're focused instead on trying to convince us that whatever crazies did what they did on January 6th last year, that somehow that is a bigger threat to America than all of this happening from Iran to Afghanistan to Pakistan and Egypt and and the uh, fallout either for or against the Abraham Accords in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere, all that doesn't, it's much less important. There's not even a strategy. There's no foreign policy. What is the Biden doctrine? It's, I think, 2.0 of the Obama doctrine, which was a Darwinian doctrine of survival of the fittest, of the most militant, that can control the narrative, control the guns, Word is, we left in the last year, it appears that they've found $7 billion worth of equipment from helicopters to munitions and elsewhere that we just sort of left. Now, yes, anytime you leave, sometimes you leave things that cost more to move it out than it would just to leave it, but it wasn't disabled. They're using it in operations. Taliban was using our helicopters in operation throughout Afghanistan. Something like they said, seven to ten different ones. I, I don't know how many, but that's absurd. Going on with Amber's article, she said, but aside from the long-term strategic failures, the single operational decision that put the nail in the coffin was the Pentagon's decision to pull out all remaining troops from Bagram Air Base in early July 2021. Aside from those 650 members protecting the embassy, nearly 3,500 troops left overnight with little notice to their Afghan counterparts. The decision to close Bagram set off a domino effect for the chaotic evacuation. It was a strategic air base. It was a former Soviet airbase with multiple runways that had 20 years of upgrades 
since the U.S. military's arrival in 2001. Tactically, it was much easier to defend than Kabul. Logistics and security were in place. The geographic terrain surrounding the base made for a capable defense. Once Bagram was closed, the U.S. military was left with only one horrible evacuation option, Kabul. And it goes on from there. So not only does President Biden and his administration have the blood and lives of our 13 soldiers that died in that evacuation in Kabul from a terrorist attack, but forever, 20 years of, of trillions of investment turned into a loss culturally, socially, and globally for America because our exit strategy was not only non-existent, it was negligent and horrifically incompetent that thus made the jihadis declare victory. That we left as losers, not as liberators that handed it back to the Afghanis in a narrative that should have been portrayed realistically with handoffs to their military. No, it was portrayed and will be forever by the jihadis as a weak American constitution internally that caused us to evacuate like children in the night. It's an embarrassment. Smith concludes, the failures of the withdrawal of Afghanistan show significant flaws in our national defense decision-making. When the disconnect gets so great between decision-makers in Washington and those commanders on the ground in war zones, it creates impossible situations with impossible expectations. Things that brief well in Washington and skiffs, two stories underground, don't always equate to real-world situation on the battlefield or for those tactical commanders who are left trying to accomplish the impossible. And I can tell you, as an American Muslim, you know, you can say, where's the moderate voice of Islam? Where's the reformers? Our Muslim reform movement still works tirelessly, night and day, trying to get the word out about what we think should happen to defeat political Islam and the Islamic State concept. But as long as these yahoos are running our government and our military strategy, and I'm sorry, I blame General Milley, I blame military that agreed to allow it to happen this way. Yes, it all starts with our commander-in-chief. But whether it was Obama 1.0 or 2.0 now with Biden, this was a military operation that should have at the Joint Chiefs level and in the Situation Room been told that if this happens this way, it will be a disaster. Even I, just a former military doctor, know as, a, as an Arab American, a Muslim American, that this is the most stupid withdrawal ever. And a year later, I hope Americans realize what the Biden administration did to whatever, whatever frustrations we had in our long war there and however much longer it should have been than it was or shorter it should have been than it was, and how long it was, rather. It is exponentially destroyed by an incompetence in our withdrawal. So, let's go on now to uh, a follow-up on what I think is the biggest story of the summer, if not the year, is the attack on Salman Rushdie. It's a confluence of not only a discussion of free speech, a discussion of the indefinite, infinite 
duration uh, involved in fatwas and attacks of uh, fatwa is a, a religious ruling, a legal pronouncement by an Islamic cleric or an imam, as we saw with Khomeini when they declared a death sentence on Salman Rushdie in 1989 with a $3 million bounty on his head. And as some reported, obviously, uh, and many of us, it's human nature sometimes to get a little complacent as as initially fear and security and, and, and thoughtfulness, mindfulness create a... a urge to to maintain some type of protection, as he had for some time, but then ultimately things got more relaxed. And now, decades, 32 years if not more after the initial fatwa against him, a militant Islamist, Hadi Matar, decides to attack Mr. Rushdie and stab him multiple times, and now as we pray for his health and his improvement and his return to to us out of the hospital that uh, Mr. Rushdie is struggling for his life after being stabbed multiple times almost three weeks ago. Now, I'm going to cover a couple things in follow-up of this story. One is, I mentioned briefly how anemic the responses were from the American Islamist Organization, including the Council on American-Islamic Relations, Muslim Public Affairs Council. But as John Resamondo reported with the Middle East Forum, he wrote, MPAC, Muslim Public Affairs Council, wrote in their press release, MPAC has been a vanguard of the right of freedom of speech, tracing our work back to 1989 when we spoke out against the fatwa issued against Mr. Rushdie. Freedom of expression is a constitutional and Islamic human right. It is utterly tragic that Mr. Rushdie was assaulted in a public space for his ideas and opinions. And then they go on, no one has a right to attack a public speaker, as Kerr said. Now, the interesting thing is, none of these folks identify Iran as the problem. None of these Islamists identify the root cause, which is the radicalization from Khomeinists and other militants. None of them identify the fact that it's not only the fact that now after he was attacked, they are condemning the violence, but they said nothing to protect him before, to defend him. It's always easy to say, oh, the moderates that are critical and apologetic about Islam, that's not where the the front lines in society are of free speech. The front lines are the ones that push the envelope the most, and they can claim apologetics that this is against Islam and their interpretation, but look for press releases in which they actually attack the Islamist Khomeinist movement as being one of the largest, most viral Islamist movements to radicalize Muslims in history, second only to the Sunni version of that, which is the Muslim Brotherhood and the Wahhabists of Islam and other Islamic State supremacists that include the viral Islamists of the Muslim Brotherhood, or the corporate Islamists of the Wahhabi. These all radicalize Muslims, and nobody's speaking about that, and that's part of what's significantly anemic. And I hope and pray that our Muslim reform movement is revitalized, is looked to, because we identify 
not after the fact, but before the fact, what the primary root, root cause radicalizers are in the West and globally. The Hadi Matars, there's going to be hundreds more of him. And this is why I said in my last podcast about how unsettling it is what happened to Salman Rushdie. Because many of us, you can't get complacent. We don't have the funding to protect ourselves, to have the security 24-7 that we should have. But even when Rushdie had this speaking engagement in New York, upstate New York, there was police there, two of them, I guess. And this, this militant had a ticket, got in, and then as Salman came to the days, he was attacked, despite the police that were there. And I have to tell you, the, the, the most poignant thing now, three weeks post the event, is how quiet, how anemic the response is. And Tom Slater put it best where he said, Salman Rushdie... And the response of the West is really more about racism of shielding Muslims from offense. First it was the horror, then it was the silence. He said, it's been a week since Rushdie was stabbed on stage in New York. The 33-year-old fatwa finally catching up with him and the mood is strangely muted. There have been some powerful defenses of free speech in the media and statements of solidarity with Rushdie who's still in the hospital nursing life-changing injuries, but in general, our political and cultural elites have managed only limp, anodyne, or oddly delayed interventions. In labor leader Keir Sturmer's case, this is in London, it took him a full day to say anything about the attempted murder of a fellow knight of the realm. Because we know it was Sir Salman Rushdie. Meanwhile, the culture warriors, those who downplay the threat of the Islamist extremism and dismiss free speech as a as racist charter, are keeping remarkably shrum. Perhaps that's progress, they would think. After all, this wasn't a courtesy. Many of them extended to Charlie Hebdo in 2015. Those 12 bodies were barely cold before the globe the global great and good began denouncing the French magazine as Islamophobic and racist for its depictions of Muhammad, all but saying the cartoonists had brought that murderous attack on themselves. But the silence after Rushdie's attack is telling in its own way that so many people can't quite find the minerals to condemn Islamist intolerance and stand up for free speech even now, even now to speak to a profound moral confusion on the part of our elites. Even in the wake of an attack as symbolic as this, there is a sense of holding back, of not wanting to rock the boat. And I'm sorry, I would add to what Tom said here. It is fear, it is cowardice against radical Islam, against the Islamite. It is unmitigated spinelessness. You can't defeat an enemy who knows you are afraid of him. You can't. And this is what's happening, that even when they attack, and the Iranian regime, by the way, basically in no uncertain terms, tried to say they had nothing to do with Hadi Matar, even though his social media had replaced avatars and pictures of Khomeinists and, and the Islamic Supreme Council leaders with what would have been his own picture. So he was clearly an avowed follower of not only the Iranian regime, but the Iranian Republican Guard Corps. But they tried to say they have, he's not one of them. Oh, really? 
And yet they said, even though he's not one of us, Rushdie eventually was going to get attacked because he, it was his fault for what he said. It was his fault. That's a clinic in radicalization. This is how radicalization works, is that you light the fuse and then you say, oh, when the bomb goes off at the end of the fuse, all of that fire going on in between, we have nothing to do with. We didn't, you know, our sparks don't land on that fuse. <laughs> Seriously? This is the ideology of supremacism that demonizes the West, that makes the West and those who criticize Islam into subhuman and thus realizes an interpretation of Islam that does not allow critique, does not allow actual equality, allow people to leave the faith, to criticize Muhammad and the faith and other things that would make us human. No, they are supremacists, and be it Khomeinists, the Muslim Brotherhood, or Wahhabis, it is supremacist, supremacism. And as Tom Slater said in the piece that sharing with you. Time and time again, the act of Islamist extremism censorship have been met with the same kind of shrug. From the Rushdie affair to the murder of the Theo van Gogh, to the Danish cartoons controversy, to the Charlie Hebdo massacre, to the beheading of Samuel Paty in France, the response has often been one of silence or a hinted at, what do you expect? And that was the Iranian response, wasn't it? Slater goes on, meanwhile, some have taken on board the idea increasingly pushed by Islamists that to depict Muhammad or lambast Islam is to engage in a form of hate speech. Three years ago, a Rushdie documentary, The Independence, associate editor slammed the satanic verses as no better than the racist graffiti on the bus stop. I wouldn't have it in my house out of respect to Muslim people and contempt for Rushdie, he wrote. I'd be quite inclined to burn it in fact. Unbelievable this is coming from Western thinkers. Contemptible comments, as Slater points out. Voices like the Arab and Muslim artists and intellectuals who published a volume of work in 93 in support of Rushdie. One of them was the Egyptian writer and Nobel laureate Najima Mahfouz. He felt that the satanic verses was indeed insulting to Islam, but he still defended its right to be published in red. The terrorism of which Rusty, Rushdie is a target is unjustifiable and indefensible, he wrote in that volume. Ideas can be opposed by other ideas. Najib himself was stabbed five years later. He himself was stabbed in the neck by extremists. So you see, Muslim thinkers former Muslims, all those who critical, critically think are the front line. This is where the battle is. It's not going to be won on the war on the battlefield in Afghanistan. This is not going to be won on the battlefield in Fallujah or in Aleppo. It is going to be won in the battlefield of cultural and social and academic and, and, and human equality. And Tom Slater, the editor of Spiked, finished his piece saying, there is a fear of reprisals, as I mentioned before, right? A cowardice. 
He said there's a fear of reprisals, of course, of being made an example of as Rushdie has been. But there's also something else going on, a deep condescension. And this is the key that I want to leave you with today. A condescension and a racist double standard. Those who feel compelled to treat Islam differently, to protect it from criticism in a way no other religion is, are treating Muslims differently. They see even their Muslim fellow countrymen as lower citizens, incapable of having their views challenged or mocked. The implication is that the Muslims are simply too backward, too volatile, too 7th century to ever embrace freedom and democracy fully. If there is any racism in this discussion, it lies not with Rushdie or supporters and count me in as a supporter. It lies with those who think Islam must be treated differently and their Muslim followers treated differently because in that, and thank you Tom Slater for that, in that, as I would say, this is a bigotry of low expectations, a bigotry in which we demean Muslims into saying and thinking that they have to act somehow viscerally, that somehow Western values of equality are just different. And they say, oh, we don't impose your values on us. But we're talking about universal values here, ladies and gentlemen. We're not talking about, we're talking about human rights, universal human rights and what it means to be alive, to be a sentient person that somehow, yes, human beings do have rights, but ideas do not have rights. And we can't delegitimize those by saying that somehow, especially when you talk about a faith of a quarter of the world's population, if we get this wrong, as we did in every strategy we had, if we don't understand what the strategic head of the spear is, then we will continue to wallow in negligence and surrender. Surrender to the Islamist theocrats. And that's what's happening. We continue to surrender to them. And we're losing domestically and globally. And they're advancing in every front. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast of what was happening in Afghanistan. We surrendered and left. And now, even President Biden, when he made a statement about Rushdie couldn't get himself to mention as if somehow, yes, Rushdie, he said, was a hero, free thinker, but he never once mentioned it was as if Rushdie was speaking in a vacuum. You can't help but wonder, was Biden not animated because of the nuclear talks? Because they're trying to come to a deal this next few weeks with Iran, so they don't want to state the obvious, which is that Iran is a fascistic, Islamo-fascist regime that is driving radicalization of folks all over the planet. And he should have called that out as a leader of the free world. And I don't think it was simply cognitive limitations on our president's part, but rather this is the entire strategy of everybody working with him. They want to come to a deal just like Obama did at any cost, any cost. And somehow that's going to make us safer when in fact most of the Folks that understand the way Iran thinks, that say that they should not get a nuclear weapon, say that they're simply pushing a few years off the reality, which is not even a few years, that, that they would be six months away from getting a nuclear weapon. And that's why they don't even want to sit at the table anymore, is because they seem to get more freedom by the less 
overtly antagonistic the Biden administration is and, and the more appeasement that they want to get from them. While during the Trump administration, say what you want about the Trump administration, but Iran was never weaker. The Green Revolution in Tehran was never stronger. They were on their heels without any military intervention, but through strength and a near global containment and a declaration that the ARGC is a terrorist organization. And now they are looking at getting billions back. And even on the table was removal of the IRGC as a terror organization, which hasn't happened, and it, it probably won't, thank God, but it is on the table. So please, if truly you don't want to be a racist against Muslims or those of Arabic and Indo-Pakistani extraction that happen to be Muslim, then expect of them what you do of your fellow neighbors when it comes to free speech, respect, and otherwise. And this topic of free speech, as we saw with Twitter, with how vaccines were addressed, with how the pandemic and lockdowns, etc., on policy, is the, is the topic of the 21st century, isn't it? It's not just about jihadis, about Islam. But everywhere possible, the establishment wants to control the narrative, wants to control what can be said or cannot be said. That's not how you win wars. That's not how societies advance into the next millennium, into the next era of intelligence. It's how we step backwards. It's how you destroy a country through division, through control and distrust with leadership rather than trust and open catharsis. As always, it's great to be with all of you, and there will be a lot more to come here. Tell your friends about Reform This. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, and also at Reform This Radio. And share the podcast. It's on iTunes and wherever you may find your favorite podcast. This is Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Podcast Network. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.